0: What did you like better, Jedi or the Empire Strikes Back? Empire. Blasphemy.
1: Empire had the better ending. I mean, Luke gets his hand cut off, finds out Vader's his father, a hand gets frozen, taken away by Boba Fett. It ends on such a down note. I mean, that's what life is, a series of down endings. All Jedi had was a bunch of Muppets.
2: From two nerds talking about Star Wars to two nerds, talking about Star Wars. Well, myself and of course our guest today, Jeremy Saliba, and I'm gonna call him a nerd because he's not here to defend himself. But Jeremy really is a perfect guest for our talk on the world of Star Wars this month because he is a concept artist and an illustrator, has worked professionally with the IP of Star Wars, but more importantly in his role at the Academy of Art and really with all students in general, What we talk about in this episode is probably one of the most important parts of any type of art education, and that's building taste, or developing your taste, or knowing what's good and knowing what's kind of garbage and how you have fun with some of that garbage even. Jeremy really does a good job of explaining how to look at movies, how to look at art, how to look at illustration, how to look at comic books and go, this is the world I want to be in how do I work in that world? How do I create in that world? And how do I play in that world? Because really, when it comes down to being an artist, you have the work you do and the work you, of course, are gonna get paid for. So definitely take some notes on this, but before we begin, please hit subscribe on whatever platform or device you're listening to us on so you never miss an episode of Creative Mind. And here we are with Jeremy Saliba. How does fan art and working with IP and drawing Star Wars for fun actually turn into something that people make a living at? It it seems like that would be the hardest one to do, but it, it seems like more and more people, including yourself, have turned Star Wars into a living, question mark?
3: I think the reason why we're seeing that proliferate and kind of explode a little bit is that, well, part of the Disney bought it. And Disney started the machine up real big. And they're, they're looking for any nook and cranny that they can use to start generating more content, more profits, anything along those lines. So we're seeing more opportunities kind of pop up in that regard. Whereas Lucas was more himself a little bit more reserved about how much he pushed it. There was that time where, I mean,
2: if you're of a certain age, that Star Wars didn't exist. There was comics, there was a couple of video games, maybe, maybe some cartoons. And it just, you really had to find it. And that was my
3: childhood. Star Wars was nerdy and wasn't that popular most of my life um, growing up. Now, it's just, it's a lot of, it's a lot. (laughs) And what's interesting about that is that basically, and I, who's to say what the true motivation was, but the the re-explosion happened in the mid to late 90s. And that was when, for example, a Kenner toy license expired. Lucas had famously gave up a salary boost for Star Wars in exchange for more money for the movie. And then he said, "But in, in in return, I want since I'm giving up, he was like three hundred thousand dollars for a salary. I want rights to the merchandising to the sequels." And the studio laughed at him and said, "Fine, yeah, who's take gonna, it. Who's gonna buy no a movie one's ever made toys. money, right? No one's ever made that work. So good luck. And uh, that's the last time that deal will ever happen because uh, it's uh, the merchandising alone is a three four billion dollar industry now uh, for Star Wars." And so Kenner was the only game in town that said yes, he went to everyone, they all said no for the toys, it was coming to them a little late, and again, it wasn't usually a profitable endeavor. And so they had a contract though, where they got a a lot of the profits, they got a good deal. Basically it was either so much percentage of the profits, or like a $10,000 flat fee every year to keep the licensing. And Lucas let things lapse, he didn't develop more Star Wars content, things all just kind of dried up and Kenner forgot. And that year, he's like, okay, Let's renegotiate. And they went, wait, what? Oh, we didn't, oh, I, but... And he got a much better deal on everything. That's when they started promoting books and more comic books. That's when, like, Dark Empire and that's when the Timothy Zahn books came out. And that's when he did the special editions. And that's when he said, I think I'm going to do a new trilogy. <laughs> so I'm sure there's more than one motivational element as to why that, that, that peak happened. But that had a lot to do with it. And then yeah, he did the prequels and then there was mixed reception. We Old all morning.
2: remember going to those midnight showings and our opinions are...
3: Well, I think it's interesting because, like, all the students I teach now, most of them, that's their entry point is the prequels. And they love them because that's what they grew up with, you know, seeing. And so I'm a grumpy old man, and I'm like, oh, I didn't enjoy them as much. And I really don't want to yuck your yum. That's not cool <laughs> at all. And that's, like, a cool thing to do. And nerd was like, well, I don't like that. I, I think that's an easy way to try to sound cool, whereas sharing what we like is a better avenue. But, yeah, I didn't, I didn't enjoy them much tonight. <laughs> he he, he kind of retreated in a lot of ways. And then, yeah, eventually sold it to Disney. And now Disney's starting up that machine. And with fan art, it's interesting because it's a double-edged sword. It's a necessary thing, but it's also something that can't be a trap for some, especially like young artists starting out, students, things like that, because fan art isn't your design You're using someone else's design. So the success, the what people like about it will oftentimes be association with a larger company, with another artist's design and work. But it's also great, it's attention grabbing. You get a lot of likes, you get your work at circulating around. So I think you need to do some, and if you rely on it, then you won't necessarily be cultivating your skills to create original designs and characters. But at the same time, how much of an option is there gonna be of that? There's a
2: question I have on that. To To really date myself, I was a big sports card collectible fan and worked at a baseball card store. And there's this strong difference between sports cards and memorabilia and comic books. On the high level, there were very nice lithographs of famous sports players. We you know, we talked to Robert Revels; He was one of the guys that did some of those. And Chuck Pyle had done, of the, done some right, of those back in the days. Right. And, and in that 90s, early 2000s, that was very popular. But now we're talking about fan art. Where is there a separation between doing art for collectability and collectors and a memorabilia market and... Fan art, which tends to have hardcore licensing restrictions, I guess. W- where, where does that develop?
3: In terms of how people start getting involved in those things, what their focuses are and what their end results are. Oftentimes when you're doing it more for like the fan base itself, for memorabilia, for collectible purposes, that can often be like private commissions. People come up to you saying, hey, I've seen you do a good Darth Vader. Can you do one for me? And that's where it's perfectly legal. If it's a private commission, then it's not an issue for licensing and things like that. It's when you start running off a bunch of copies of the artwork that you did and selling them that the studios will take notice. And even then, there's this weird relationship where they actively ignore a large chunk of it because it's still pushing the brand. It's still creating larger visibility. The only time they seem to really intervene is when they feel like they're going to be losing out on money. When something's successful, that's when you get the cease and desist. With my personal experience with that, I had been working at a smaller company in San Francisco doing more mobile stuff and doing small graphic kind of designs. And after almost a year of doing that, I had this strong urge to get to vast, you know, large-scale painterly kind of stuff. And uh, I got laid off at one point. I think like the day, the week I got laid off, I had a decent severance package, so I had some time to get my portfolio together, and I had two little kids at home, so I knew it was a rare opportunity where I wasn't going to have to work, and they were at like daycare, my wife was at work, and I was like, huh, so I just did some like personal pieces and kind of indulged a little bit, and uh, I did this piece where Luke's standing up against an at-at, and it's it's like if someone were to Google it, would be under like at-at attack, that's an old original version of the painting I had done, and that took off, it got like a million hits on Imager and people liked it, and then uh, a little while later, a video game company came out with a Star Wars video game, and their cover looked a lot like my painting. It wasn't like they copied my painting, but it was very clear they saw it. I, my friends of mine called me and said, hey, have you seen the new cover for that new game? And I, I said, what do you mean? They said, look. And I looked it up, and I was like, oh, that's similar. But they said, no. No, 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 no. That's, they saw your art, and they used it as the basis for their cover. And what are you going to do? You know, I had no authority to make that painting, really. Right. I had, didn't have the licensing. I didn't have anything. And they own all rights to all imagery of that of that kind of stuff. So uh, I couldn't do anything about it. It would have been nice if the company had, like, sent me an email and said, hey, cool painting. Want a name in the credits? Do you want but anyway, What are you going to do? Uh, but then that piece is also what led to Lucasfilm and Lucasfilm licensors to seek me out and say, hey, do you want to do more? And so at that point, then I'm working for, I have to, everything I'm doing is approved by Lucasfilm. From concept to final image. Anyone I've ever talked to who's worked um, in this capacity, that is where it gets tricky because they know their stuff and they have very specific, you know, goals. For example, whenever I draw Darth Vader, I love Darth Vader. He's probably my favorite character design of all time. He's a samurai. It's the
2: most iconic thing ever.
3: Everyone sees that design and reacts to it. He's supposed to be like almost seven feet tall. Supposed to be this huge monster and the guy who played him in the suit is a guy named David Prowse. He was a weightlifter and um, he's been in a few movies. He just died just a little bit ago. Uh, I think it was last year. And a uh, huge man. But the helmet is so big, the human head doesn't change size a lot. As you grow, people who are short, like myself, I'm 5'7", our head looks larger on our body and people who are taller, their head looks smaller on their body. And because his helmet adds so much, it makes you don't notice necessarily unless he's standing next to someone that he's this big monster. So when I draw him, I try to make the head a little bit smaller to try and embody that you know, I'm not bound by physics to embody that monstrous quality, and every time they come back and say, uh-uh, nope, head's too small. Make it bigger, and I'll go okay, and I'll make it a little bit bigger, and then they go, mm You I see you made it a little bit bigger, but uh mm, That it.
2: that almost sounds like a, a double edged sword of like, congratulations, you're now drawing something you love dearly. Now we're,
3: we're gonna, gonna stick make you our hate our fingers
2: it. in your eyes <laughs> constantly. <laughs>
3: There's definitely two ways to look at it. When I talk to people who talk about who deal with these licensing kinds of endeavors, they're very open and cool about saying, "Look, you can make money without us. You can sell it on your own, and then you don't have to deal with this kind of stuff." But obviously, you know, we'll we'll catapult you with our platforms and get your work out there more, and it is going to be Lucasfilm approved, which has got some prestige going along with it. And that, I mean, I was sold. I'm, you know, a big nerd and a big fan, so I kind of wanted to do it that way. And it's an honor to work at that level. And in my my outlook on it is that, I, because I'm a concept artist, I think that the greatness of design lies in having constraints. If you're free to do anything, it's not as cool as if you're handcuffed and still can get the job done. And so I like those, because so that's my challenge. I can't change those things, so what can I do? A lot of the artists that I work with, you'll see a lot of artwork where they'll, they'll do a beautiful painting of like a scene from the movie, like a still. And a, a lot of people are looking for that in, in Star Wars artwork, whereas I'm always trying to pitch Moments in between the scenes or in between the movies. Something that no one's seen before. Because it's such a big universe, there's room. And that can be challenging, too. You know, like, the first one of the first pieces I did, I believe it, they they have me give them titles, which is not something I'm used to doing with artwork, so I feel weird. But the first one's called Vengeful Pursuit, and it's where Vader's on Endor. And uh, I pitched that to Lucasfilm, and they said, Well, Vader's never been on Endor, so no. And I was like, Wow, I don't want to... Be the guy who's telling lucasfilm about star wars movies but i was sending them stills of vader there's not scenes of him walking around the forest but that's where luke surrenders to him is on a platform that's on he goes down to Endor. the emperor tells him to go down there is the a quest.
2: dream sequence for those of us who have watched the movies a thousand times i believe that's an empire yeah there's that yes.
3: so anyways yeah i i, I they're like oh okay so i have to kind of i'll try to innovate in ways that don't rely on me pushing design so much. What's interesting about that, too, is I know that one of the things you and I kind of briefly discussed was, like, you know, designing for other IPs and, you know, how to go about doing that. And philosophically, I think that my, my favorite movie studio that I think adapts IP to the screen is Marvel. Their designs are really cool, and they all honor the original designs from the comic books. We can all recognize in the comic books, they don't kind of throw it out and start fresh. And I think some franchises will do that. You know, they'll say, ah, those original designs won't work at all, so start new. And I think that that's removing a constraint that's making it a lot easier and removing the challenge. And so working within those constraints, like, for example, I would say a franchise that didn't adhere very closely to the original designs, famously, and they didn't make any bones about it, was the Transformers film franchise. They, you know, they said, oh, that's not going to work. Those cartoons aren't going to work for live action.
2: Right. and, and that's just But that's just all Bayham and crazy... Michael Bay's obviously the driving force
3: behind all that, which is still breaks my brain because it's like, well, they're based on cars. Like it's fenders and tires and windshields. Those look really real to me, you know?
2: With something like that, where you have Star Wars, the audience is pure nostalgia. Marvel, there's some nostalgia, but there's some people who's like, I don't like comic books, but I do like all these actors. I can get past all this. I can, this is, these are names, but with Transformers, I noticed the first thing I noticed when watching it was, I had spent two years, you know, filming, you know, indie racing and it made so much more sense to me as a car nerd. This doesn't look like 2D cartoons, Right, right? which at the same time is, gonna, is probably where that audience grew. So yeah, I, but yeah, it does make sense when you're talking about IP. Yeah,
3: yeah, you have to translate. And there's always something lost in the translation. Sometimes there's something gained, but then that's also usually you forcing your opinion into the, into the translation.
2: So for young artists, it's the big question. Is it a viable step to do fan art or is it just there's certain IPs that fan art's part of the process?
3: I think doing fan art's basically a necessary part of, of becoming a, a professional artist these days. Because again, it's going to give your media fee a little blip, increase your visibility a little bit. Because like you say, Star Wars, and I would agree right now, the big focus is nostalgia. I think there's room for it to be new and not necessarily so reliant on the nostalgia. But yeah, that's that's a big deal. And and I think with that nostalgia, people just want to see things they like. You know, oh, I, I recognize that. Hey, I like that. Because I think it really started with Avengers when they made You know, they had three franchises. They had Captain America, they had Iron Man, and they had Thor. And they bought them together in the Avengers and made a mega franchise, as it's now called. And that's something even the bean counters can understand, you know, for the movie studios. And go, oh, A plus B equals C. So then, obviously, Warner Brothers wanted to jump in on that and try to create their Justice League movie, and then everyone else, too. And then they started figuring out how to do what people in my department, would kind of refer to it as a backdoor franchise, mega franchise, where they don't have to build up all the individual ones, they can just come out with all of them together on the first movie. An example of that would be the Lego movie. I don't think they necessarily intended to do, like, a backdoor franchise mega blockbuster, but they did. And I was just reading yesterday the reports about the new Space Jam, which a lot of people are excited about. And that's gonna be another backdoor mega franchise where they said, I guess the plot is they're gonna go through the catalog of Warner Brothers films. So it's gonna have Mad Max in it. It's gonna have all these other worlds in it. And so when you have when you're making a movie like that, you're gonna need people to do reinterpretations of those other IPs. And so showing that you can do that in a portfolio these days, I think it's kind of a necessity, right?
2: And also, I mean, your department, I mean, you're specifically in the visual development department, which has a lot of concept art and, you know, the work you've done. It's not hero artwork. It's not that great hero shot like we, we were talking about sports memorabilia or even cards where it's like, okay, here's the cool photo. Now make a painterly version of it. It's a deep, deep concept where people are putting... I'm not going to say they put far too much meaning on it, but they are establishing meaning that is so important. I remember you know, way back when I was in school taking a philosophy class and the guy who taught it had built the entire intro to philosophy around pop culture. Mm. So it was like, I'm going to explain this deep philosophical thing. Now here's a clip from Star Wars. So you get it. <laughs> and it was like, nice. oh, I get that concept now seeing it. For lack of term, dummy down, but or visualized. Where you know, if you're seeing concept art and some of this visual development artwork, it d- it does look like, ooh, there's some feeling there. That's where- that's
3: that's a very good observation. You're right, and that's not a distinction a lot of people make. I am of an older generation, and when I was going to art school, concept art didn't exist yet. It was late 90s, early 2000s, and it was The Phantom Menace when that came out, the art book, again, appropriately enough, a Star Wars related issue. I believe, and I can argue this very well, that The Phantom Menace created concept art because Lucas innovated filmmaking and he blended 2D animation techniques of doing all these designs before starting, iterating character designs, things like that, and then bringing them into the 3D world and and live action world. That movie was the first time anyone filmed with a digital camera at all. Everyone told Lucas he was nuts, and everyone's going to be able to tell. It looks terrible. And it was only some parts. And, you know, fast forward to now, and people like, you know, who insist on film, like Grant Tarantino or Christopher Nolan, have a hard time with that. Because no one, it's all digital. And the Art of book that came out, everyone went, oh, including the studios, video games, 3D animation. Oh, okay, we do all this. It's cheaper to draw it. We do all this decision-making in that point. And all the, all the sketches were rough. If you go look back at those early Art of books, it's all marker sketches and pen and ink sketches, and they were concepts. And so, but over time, what's happened is a lot of concept art that it's promoted the most is super, super polished, heroic kind of stuff sometimes. And that's a little bit of a misleading kind of image because most concept art is still kind of rough and atmospheric. They're hiring us mostly for ideas a lot okay. of the time. But when artists, they post the work, sometimes the studio says, keep polishing it for the art of the book. Literally, you'll hear those words oh, wow. in the studio. And other times artists will polish it after the fact because they're hustling, right? They're posting work, they're trying to get eyes on the work, they're trying to get more jobs at ahead of the time. So they'll put that extra polish on it because that's something almost everyone can appreciate is like, ooh, look how shiny that is. Look how complete that artwork is.
2: Yeah, because I noticed it when season one of Mandalorian came out, and you know, and we're now predestined to watch credits because there's yeah. gonna be something there, whether we know it or not. Yeah. And it was all concept art. And I was in the back going. I've talked to enough concept artists knowing that this is concept art. <laughs> and this is really cool. Ooh, there's little animatics to this. Yeah. this is, you know, you kind of want to look at it and go, was that the job? Was that the assignment? Or was that somebody's going, no, 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 let me, give, me, give me another day. Give me another day and put it in the credits.
3: Yeah, on that particular show, I, Doug, Doug Chang did a few pieces on season one. And he's kind of the head of all the creative stuff at Marvel these days. Uh, all, the, all the art. And uh, they hired an artist named Brian Matias, who is, has been a favorite. I might have been a fan of his for about a decade. He's a game artist. And I would use his artwork, his character designs, as an example of how to design well to my classes. And so I immediately, you know, I'm not surprised that Lucasfilm snatched him up and went, wow, this person's on the leading edge. And i got like to have a conversation with him recently and uh, talk to him about this. And he was saying that he's got to do like two of those paintings a day to stay on target. So he's fast and he's good. But if you really look at those paintings, the characters are what's polished. The backgrounds behind them are pretty suggestive.
2: Once you get some years under your belt, you're like, those are really good storyboards.
3: Those right, are, right. Those
2: right. are the good storyboards. I noticed with concept art and storyboards, there's this kind of you know blending where, depending on where your background is, it's like is it a storyboard, is it a concept art, and then you know you guys have this concept of visual development where it's like, no, we're telling the entire thing.
3: Yeah, you'll see that like t- typically the storyboards that are refined into a painting, we we call those production paintings or uh, key paintings. And you're right, basically you could do the storyboard and then boom, you have that big moment, which then you're hired to do to create look and feel, the atmosphere, the mood of, of everything along with all the, the action. But yeah, he, and he also, Brian Mottas would also talk about other time-setting methods, like how he, if he's doing a character painting, he won't necessarily, he's got a catalog of old sketches of, like, figure drawings that he will then open up and use as a basis. I, I'm telling all the secrets here. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> he, you know, he'll use it as a basis as the as drawing, so he's not coming up with a new pose necessarily. He's got something, a skeleton he can hang it on, so he can focus on designing the costume elements that that's his main goal of, of the day.
2: There's there's certain po you, you need those hero poses right. you need that guy to look like Spider Man Spider Man right. doesn't move this way Darth Vader doesn't jump so right. showing Darth yeah. Vader jump just ain't gonna are gonna see gonna it. cut it they're gonna they're <laughs> they're
3: CGIing all these I just saw uh, an interview with Roger Deacons, the cinematographer for Everything Good Shawshank Redemption Blade Runner 2049 yeah. No yeah, Control Man yeah
2: there goes there you know what's the old joke you know what's the difference between God and a DP you know, God doesn't uh, think he's a DP. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Especially, yeah, in Deacon's case. But he, he thinks that all actors are going to be CGI, like, in, like, the next 20 years. That live-action actors are going to be, like, an indie thing. I, I hope he's wrong.
2: I hope so, too. <laughs>
3: but, so, yeah, we'll see that eventually. I think, you know, that they are jumping around. I think the, the, the fan yearning for it is, is is strong enough.
2: But that kind of sets up that question of what's good? And we can all look back at the prequels, and now we look at and go, "Wow, those colors are really video, videoey, poppy, you know." And bleh. and then there's so much, you know. We can, you know, CGI has gotten better, video has gotten better. You don't have to draw with a pen and paper anymore. You can work on a Cintiq, you can work on Procreate. But your source material and your love has to be good. So how do you develop good taste?
3: That's an excellent question. I think that's the, that's the million-dollar question. That's become a focus for our department as well, not just instructing people on the mechanics of how to create what they want to create, but also how to be able to judge. Because there's a lot of good stuff out there, and there's a lot of garbage. I mean, right. before we started rolling, we were talking yeah. about RoboCop, and
2: yeah. RoboCop's amazing. Mm-hmm. RoboCop 2, <laughs> I would not force anyone to watch, let alone I, I see it come up I'm like, nah, I'll, I'm going to go to sleep now. If the only thing on is RoboCop 2. I think I'll just go to bed.
3: What an amazing <laughs> example. I mean, you're right. There's parts of it I love because I can't help myself. It's directed by Irvin Kershner, the same guy who directed Empire Strikes Back. Right, right. The thing is, you know, we all have our different levels of things that we have taste in and, and different influences. Our influence is kind of defined, especially creatively, and define, I think, a lot of who we are. Like you said, and I said, we both saw RoboCop at probably too young of an age, and that has had an influence. And uh, uh, RoboCop's got all the, all the hallmarks of a pulpy action, quote-unquote, brainless film. But the one thing, if you go back and watch it again, and you watch it again, and some of us nerds do again and again and again, you start to peel back these layers that there's actual meaning behind all that stuff. Like the way Robocop's helmet starts coming off throughout the movie as his humanity becomes revealed. The the, the beauty of the opening, way he gets killed, and then everything's from his POV, and you have no idea what he's thinking or feeling at all. He's a blank slate, and he first wakes up, they, they hide him in all the opening shots. You don't see him for a long time as he's walking through the police station, and slowly his personality unfolds along with the visuals and you realize what a mastery, masterful way that is to execute it. So, yeah, it becomes a matter of you know what what you like versus what's good. And there's certain ways I think you can look at something that's measurably good or measurably bad. And it's okay to like something bad, and it's okay to not like something good. Just because you like something doesn't mean it's good. And just because you hate something doesn't mean it's bad. Oh, so, The Phantom Menace, a lot of people like that movie. But it is arguably not well executed and you can so the metrics okay so for example there's this great review it's called mr Plunkett's phantom menace review it's kind of crass and silly and it was done in the early days of youtube but if you look at it they bring up some really great points of saying okay so in a movie like star wars you should probably follow something close to the hero's journey something relatable a good a, a typical plot structure unless you're the cohen brothers or stanley kubrick or david lynch and your audience should include children so let's not try to lose him. So let's make a, a clean plot. And in a Star Wars movie, arguably, character should be one of the top most things. So they have this experiment. They get these people together and say, describe the following character. As, as if you've been talking to someone who's never seen Star Wars and describe them without saying what their job is or what they look like. So they say Han Solo. And they go, oh, you know, he's an arrogant rogue. He's uh, swashbuckling. You know, uh, he considers himself a playboy, but really he's not. And, you know, they, they go on and on and on about him. C3PO. He's this kind of, you know, anal retentive, snooty, kind of effeminate, you know, kind of bumbling, goofball. They know on and on and on and on. And they say, Queen Amadala. And everyone's like, Ugh. you know, uh, you can't say what she looks like. Can't say she was a queen. Uh, she's nice. Um, you know, Qui-Gon <laughs> Jinn, you know, stern. He's pretty stern. Um, but they didn't develop him very much. Wo-
2: wooden? Wooden? Are they all, can <laughs>
3: they we all say wooden?
2: Is everybody wooden? <laughs>
3: Right, right, and I mean, there are things that, I mean, obviously, like, Darth Maul's cool, it's unfortunate he's only in it for five minutes, and, you know, and that's that. I dressed up as Darth Maul for the premiere to go see it, I was so excited, <laughs> and then, you know, walked out kind of head-hanging, like, oh, man. I, I, um, I
2: remember going to the premiere, not, not the midnight, but the, uh, the 1 a.m. at mm-hmm. Man's Chinese with some friends, and a friend was just, you, you think you would have ran over his dog <laughs> when we came out. I mean, he was visibly hurt. It's okay, man, it's all right. It, what we all we all knew what it was. We're all out. Let's go get some pie. It's okay. Right. No, like, oh, man, I just can't I can't. I can't. I just can't.
3: Right. And you know, you could look at it further, who's the main character of the Phantom Menace? That's hard to say. It's hard to say Anakin. He doesn't come in until about halfway through and even then he doesn't affect anything. He just kind of bounces around. He has no idea what's going on around him. Obi Wan, he's not really the main character, you know, maybe Qui-Gon, but even then, you know, so that movie structurally has issues. And so to me then, again, the trick is, if I like something that everyone thinks is bad, but I find merit in it, there's a couple things that are good about that. One, not everything that's bad is always all the way bad. So for example, I like the movie Constantine with Keanu Reeves. And I get why people didn't like it in terms of comparing it to the comic book and his casting was an unusual one to mix with that character. I almost look at that movie as it's less than the sum of its parts. All the scenes are really cool, like individualized. Something happens when you put them together and it's less interesting. You can go back and find these gems that have unique, cool things in them, and then you can kind of, like, use those as an influence. And people think you're a genius because it seems original. And really, you're just riffing off of an idea that isn't as popular, which I think is another good thing to kind of, like, at least make it appear that you have good taste. There's a quote, and I don't know who said it. I've heard it was Albert Einstein, but I have no idea. That said, geniuses are just good at hiding the reference. None of us can design in a vacuum. I don't think that's possible. We're all influenced, and I think good design is something that Actually, it comes from the familiar. The reason why we like a design is because there's something familiar about it, even if we don't know what that is. It's that whether it's based on shapes that we have an association with or you know, previous uh, iterations of things. Skull shapes, if you, you use a skull shape for design, everyone always kind of goes, ooh, and likes it. And so you can design in a vacuum, but if you can find unique, you know, inspirational kind of places to do that from, that can be good. So now the other thing is, obviously there are movies too that are really, really good that weren't very successful. I think the most recent example for me of one that I, won't stop beating the drum on is blade owner 2049 i really liked that movie i think it's i think it's excellent i think it's really yeah. well done
2: i think that is a perfect example from what you just explained is that movie is so it's king nerdery of nerddom and you have to be somebody like me who you know always wanted to be a cinematographer and, and grew up doing photography it's like roger deakins ordered ten thousand one one 1k lights that nobody else ever did and said build me a wall
3: and they did Well, and I think that came about, too, from this, we all get this tunnel vision as well, where I think it's good to be aware of, you know, elections have helped people figure out that we're in bubbles (laughs) online, right? That we kind of just flock to what we like, and somehow that happened with Blade Runner, the first one, because the first one tanked, too, because it's borderline boring, I would Mm -hmm. say, that movie. That's another example. I love it, but the first time I watched it, I didn't. I was like a teenager thinking, oh, Harrison Ford, science fiction, this is going to be awesome. It's going to be like Raiders of the Lost Ark meets Han Solo. And it tanked, and it's not very accessible to the average person. It doesn't have a standard plot, Isn't is not usually the hero's journey structure, and that loses people. But the genius of the structure of the film and of the, the dialogue that a lot, a lot of times the actors themselves came up with has resonated, and, and it, it, is, it is behind. In many ways, I would say Blade Runner is a production that's the, one of the most key ones that has influenced all science fiction concept art moving forward from there. Just the cinematography, the lighting, they would backlight everything in all their shapes and turn to silhouettes and it's hard to not see that influence.
2: Sure. I mean, it, it is the it is the most ripped off visuals. I mean I remember seeing Blade Runner later in life and then going like, oh, it's kind of like everybody that first, that, that, you know, you take a film 101 class and you're forced to watch Breathless and uh, Casablanca and, you know, Rules of the Game or, you know, something super nerdy. And you're like, oh, I've just seen and Citizen Kane. I've just, it's like, oh, I've just seen literally every single movie in eight hours.
3: Right. And so I think, again, we, we get we get locked in these bubbles. So even the film industry, the studio themselves thought we're going to make a billion dollars, making a Blade Runner sequel. This will be great. It's like, don't you remember? The average person doesn't like Blade Runner. They don't right. want anything to do with it. Like, film nerds love it. Right. And so, so got, somehow we got lucky enough that they gave Denny Villeneuve, like, a $250 million budget to make that movie. They never should have. And so we have this gorgeous, you know, masterpiece. And learning how to bridge that gap is, basically, when you start going to art school uh, and learning the stuff that you're going to learn for the rest of your life, you become obnoxious. <laughs> you become informed now, right, about how not only... Opinionated. Sure, yes, opinion to to a toxic degree. You want to tell everyone what you've learned, right? And when it comes to stuff like movies or music or anything, you know, creative like that, you become that, ugh, well, it's not actually that cool, you know, that thing you like. It's not, and I, I'm horribly guilty of it.
2: Dude, we're talking on a podcast, for crying out loud. Yeah, right, right yes. The, the, yes. Ultimate, the ultimate, I have a microphone, and I <laughs> can post my opinions. Idiot. Right,
3: that wedding wedding singer, I have a <laughs> microphone and I can say anything I want. Uh, exactly. <laughs> you listen to everything I have to say. So, you know, but we also, we start to think that the things that we grew up on that we cherish are, we're going to start forcing that on others. And that's, no, you got to see it, it's really good. Mm, is it? You know? <laughs> and I relate it to food a lot too, because... Again, you don't have to like just because it's good. You don't have to like it. For me, Citizen Kane, the first time I saw it, it's been a while since i revisited it. But I was like, wow, this is, this is difficult to stay focused. <laughs> this oh, is, absolutely. He famously yeah. put a crow kong in it to wake the audience up partway yeah. through. And that's hard to argue that it's it, not good. It's,
2: it's like when you start getting into somebody forces you to drink wine that's more than $10.
3: Right. It's like,
2: oh, oh, I got to think about this.
3: But there's some nights, so like five-star, five-course meal, uh, everything nice, you know, silverware plate works good. There are some, tides, some nights where I just want a bag of Doritos for dinner. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Sometimes you want kind of a crappy, kind of comforty, kind of a movie.
2: Well, give me your grab bag uh, family lunch pack of Doritos movies.
3: So an example of a movie that I like that is bad, that is arguably a terrible movie, but I love it, and I don't, again, want to disparage anyone who likes it. the The Now You See Me movies, when I watch them when they're on TV, that's what I'm doing. I start flipping channels I'm like, oh, I hate this movie. Oh, wait, what, look at this part. Oh, look at that part. And they made a sequel, and it's yep. called Now You See Me Too. I don't know how they didn't name it Now You Don't. <laughs> I don't know how that skips. But, yeah, my comfort food movies, my, my trashy kind of comfort food movies, oof, I don't know. Because they're all, I mean, every time I bring up a movie, it's like, well, that's actually really good. Like Big Trouble in Little China.
2: Well, that's the greatest movie ever. I'm <laughs> um, just, just saying.
3: I'm going to say this, and I say
2: mm-hmm. this a lot on the podcast for all 10 people that listen. My, my wife, I met my wife in China, and... I had to sit her down to watch the movie, and she didn't let me name our son the Pork Chop Express. Ah. But at some point, when he's old enough to, to really get it, he's gonna be called the Pork Chop Express. Right, likes it great, <laughs> nice job.
3: My youngest son is named Logan, and my wife brought that up. What about naming him Logan, and I had to keep my cool. My wife's not a nerd at all, she's kind of anti-her. She's you know the, the poor woman, because we have two sons, and they love Marvel and Star Wars and everything that dad likes, and so, she has to just kind of endure it a lot. <laughs> we just got a new dog, and she's before we got it, we are talking names, and she looked at me, finger raised in my face, and said, No Star Wars names. <laughs> she wanted a cute name. She's uh, like, okay. Milo and Hugo. She wanted something like that. And we got him, and she was trying to call him Milo, but it just wasn't fitting. And she said, What about Kylo? And I was, you know, keeping my cool. You know, hey, <laughs> Kylo's cool. And, you yeah, know, she's yeah. like, because he's a little rougher than just a Milo. And she said, But didn't Kylo kill his parents, though? I said, Oh, not his mother. And she <laughs> said, Now my dog's name is Kylo.
2: Well, let me give you a better question then, because, you know, we can sit here and nerd out for days. But for students coming into the school and pretty much anybody else who's really trying to start to understand art and where this stuff is going and when they start seeing your work in a gallery somewhere or they they go in and start seeing high value art and then lowbrow art and all this in between, how does somebody develop taste and i'm going to give you two somebodies, you know the average student coming in and then more importantly the students who are not growing up on american culture who are coming in maybe to the academy from somewhere else who you know have their own loves and and desires and and, and heroes how does somebody get into this americana
3: I think, I mean, in a word, exposure of researching, and by that I mean watching movies. I think kind of exposing yourself to a a lot of these things that you hear about that are good. So we're doing these film nights over Discord at the Academy now where we're, you know, doing presentations on movies like Robocop, like also but like The Triplets of Belleville or Isle of Dogs, or we just showed The Shining and did a deep dive on that because they should be exposed to it because their future art directors will be referencing these things. So it's good. And again, we have young students, international students, people who won't have seen stuff from earlier eras. But I, I truly believe it again, to use the food analogy, it's you got to eat your vegetables, you know, uh, if you want to if you want to be healthy, you have to take in the good stuff. And I'm I get really hardcore about this. And <laughs> my poor children, again, you know, they I won't kind of allow really bad stuff in the house. because um, And I'm, I'm kind of a jerk as I don't think I'm necessarily right. But I feel very strongly that if they watch a lot of stuff with bad, it's like junk food you'll get unhealthy after a while, and you've got to go to the doctor. And so I think, you know, eating your vegetables and watching these movies, not only will it inform you, but I think you start to develop that taste because you'll start to appreciate subtlety, and especially if you're watching it maybe with someone who is a fan, who has enthusiasm about that stuff too. Like when we do our movie nights or with a fellow student. And I think some of the students they've been talking about starting up their own discords within the department, student run discords and other elements like that, that's, that's fun, that's cool. Because they're going to know also their own point of view from their generation better which I think is really important because again I don't want to yuck anyone's yum and that's why I don't tell them you know Phantom Menace is a terrible movie and you can't like it by all means keep liking it but don't try to convince someone it's good but but you can convince someone you like it and you can tell them why but at the same time yeah I think if, if you're exposed to these good things you start seeing it's hard I don't know maybe maybe I'm too much in a bubble but I just recently the most recent film I saw that really kind of blew me away was one called Possessor. It just came out a few months ago. Uh, I think it's a, no it's twenty twenty release, but it's Brandon Cronenberg. He's the son of David Cronenberg. Okay. it's so, his directorial debut. Got it. And so it's going to be out there. It's out there, and it is, and it's it's gory and it's violent. I wouldn't call it a horror movie, though. Some people kind of lean it that way, and I won't say much more about it if anyone's interested. Just dive in if you if you can stomach some some gore. But it's incredible, and it's as far as I can tell, it's all practical effects. And the CGI brush that we wave across movies these days, it, it has almost a blandness to it now. Because I think that a lot of the time when you're appreciative of a piece of artwork or a movie or any kind of creative endeavor, it's because there's an element of magic to it almost. Like, how'd they do that? Wow, how'd they do that? And in the movie The Prestige, which I think is a very, very good movie also, it might be Christopher Nolan's best actual movie, but the movie famously dives into this idea that once people know how you did the trick, they don't care anymore. They're not impressed and with cgi no one's that impressed you know anymore because we know how they do it oh that's cgi
2: yeah you're off you know, um, going oh the cgi didn't look too bad in that movie
3: right right oh the cgi looked pretty good this movie But yeah. it's rare that anyone says how they do that anymore and i think an example that's a hybrid would be the mandalorian because they have that new soundstage sure, the, with the, the, thing, yeah. the giant screens where they can just you know on the spot adjust of living background and again that deacon's interview it's him talking to people about that setup and you know how it's kind of revolutionizing things it could change things deakins was kind of picking on it a little bit saying well it's not right that there's a oh the law the law of inverse proportion Inver, inverse square square yeah, yes inverse square law because it's like well your light's still coming from close it's not coming from far away even though you're, you're it's sunlight it's a simulation of sunlight it's coming really close to the actors not like real so it's going to feel different the drop off's different everything's different but that caused people to go ooh right because it was something new and it wasn't just relying on the same old thing the goal for us as concept artists and visual development artists, in my opinion, isn't to recreate reality. Because we all have cameras now. So it's easy to go places and bring that back to the studio and say, here's reality. 3D, things like that, those things at a push of a button can generate sometimes certain environments, certain lighting conditions. You can you can set things up really well. Rob Ruppel, who is a concept art legend, an art director, worked at Naughty Dog, was one of the top guys on Spider-Verse, gave a talk a couple of years ago at the GDC, and it was cinematography for art directors. And he goes into great detail about the relationship between photography and art and then movies and photography and art and how they all inform informed each other. And he talks about how well, we as artists are trying to recreate an experience, not the full level of detail when you're there. Because the human eye, when you go to the Grand Canyon, you don't actually see everything all at once. You tend to focus on individual aspects and you tend to have a reaction to a one moment at a time. And anytime you go anywhere, if you look down an alleyway and then keep going down the street, you're not going to have photographic memory of everything in that alleyway, you're, but there's something that you noticed. Someone kicking a bottle, you hear the noise. There's always an area of focus. And a painting, a, a scene in a movie should be similar where you're, you're recreating an experience. You're giving a, you're creating a focal point. You're giving a moment where all the action and all the elements compositionally leading towards one area. And that's going to transport an audience more than just recreating reality. It's is you kind of recreate the experience of being there.
2: Then that's the question then, you know, just to kind of bring it back to Star Wars, a world that is completely fabricated in the, in the most intense way possible. How does somebody then create that reality? What are some of the things you have to keep in mind when you are creating this concept art that's based in sci-fi, based in all the original things that it's built upon? What should people start thinking about when now you got to create something that doesn't exist? Well, I technically have no rules. I can make things like an ad at, which doesn't really make sense, but it works great.
3: But no one questions it while they're watching that movie, though, yeah. right? We're all caught up. Um, what a good question. You should do a podcast. you talk to <laughs> professionals and ask them questions. That's a good question. There's two answers to that. One is that that's exactly right. Your influences are a key component to that. Like you see, there's no restrictions. Because we as humans, we're, our frame of reference is this planet. So if you're trying to reference something outside this planet, you still have to reference stuff that the people know. Like I say, uh, good design is based on familiarity. So if you look at like Lord of the Rings, they based all the cultures of Middle Earth visually on real-life cultures. You know, the dwarves were more like German. You know, Germanic kind of hard-edge kind of stuff. The elves were more French, you know, and swirly. And the, the humans were a little bit more British, right? And, and, and they t- twisted it, but they had those foundations, which, was, which is what made them feel real. And so with Star Wars, you have things like samurai, you have westerns, you have all that kind of Flash Gordon kind of genres coming into a a blend, which is what made it feel so unique. But then the times where it gets really successful. So for my in my opinion, Empire Strikes Back is the best of all the Star Wars movies in terms of every possible interpretation of what. Yeah, yeah,
2: that's that's not a question.
3: Right. And (laughs) it's not just because of the polish of the designs or because of how much people find the character designs appealing, it's because they had a lot of depth going on. So, for example, the Carbon Freeze Chamber is, again, one of the most iconic sets of all of Star Wars and an iconic moment. And I think one of the most iconic moments, arguably, in in movie history. And it's very atmospheric. It's very uh, dark and moody. It's actually not that complicated of a set. It's mostly just silhouettes. And so the floor is this black metal floor with orange lights in it. And the walls, there are no walls, it's just this blue smoke. And if you really go back and watch that movie and pay attention, what they've done is that black metal with orange lights on the floor it looks like magma. It looks like volcanic, you know, rock with, with lava flowing over it, and the blue is just a twilight sky. And if you listen, it's they have bubbling sound effects low in the background. While um, you're watching that to reinforce these ideas, because Luke, Luke is now in hell. They made a technological hellscape. They gave themselves a constraint because if you can base it on anything, then what do you? It, no one has a frame of reference for a carbon freezing chamber, so you have to think of something to kind of base it on, and hopefully have a thematic connection as to why you're basing on it. Luke is now facing the devil in hell in this moment. I believe very strongly that, that is a huge element to why that scene is so good, why the audience responds to it so well. Is because we felt that we didn't realize it in our conscious brains, but our subconscious. This is a huge deal for everybody. Realizes that. So I think if you give it a layer of meaning. If you think of something beyond just the surface level of what you're designing, and even if it's just for yourself to inform how you're arranging your references together, people are going to respond to it. It's going to resonate because it's got a bit familiar.
2: So you're saying that you want to do things like an artist. (laughs) <laughs> what
1: you're yeah
3: what's the phrase leave room for god in the room i think it's a screenwriting phrase but you carve out every last detail i think that kind of flattens things out also you know atmospherics dark corners i mean people like jaws because you don't see the shark that's what is part of the feeling it. the alien and alien so on and so forth and it's when you start clearly defining things that people again start to lose interest a little bit and so i have reticence about the 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 Sheer volume of Star Wars projects coming down the pipe because will there be any corners of the universe left to kind of breathe on their own or for imaginations to kind of fill in? So the old days in Disney, back in like the 30s and the 40s when they were first starting to make movies, when they made Bambi, one of the early concept artist, the visual development artist in that movie was a guy named Tyrus Wong, who's an incredible guy. He just died a few years ago. He died at like 106 or something. He was a, a Chinese immigrant, came with his father, never saw his mom and sisters ever again, and developed his skill and was a good landscape artist and painted backgrounds and forest paintings. And when they were doing Bambi, he had the gumption to put in some deer in some of his forest paintings and bring him into the studio. And Walt went, hey, you're pretty good. You should work on Bambi. And he had all this atmosphere. He changed the look of the film through his work is he would just, he would leave the forest to, to kind of uh, disappear into atmosphere and obscurity in the backgrounds. And you look at those paintings and everyone responds to that for a couple reasons. And one of them is that's beautiful and well done. Another one is that you you're now using your mind to fill in the blanks like people do when they're watching Jaws or watching alien or whatever, which means now you're an active participant in what you're viewing. You're, you're helping fill it in, which gives you an inherent appeal. You like it more. It's very similar to reading the book and then watching the movie. When you read the book, you're the one supplying the imagery in the way that you know best and what appeals to you the most. And when they make the movie, someone else has had to make that choice and sometimes it clashes.
2: Well, then on the the question of taste and and maybe skill, Mm -hmm. does that just mean making it dark for dark sake? Or is that a trap young artists can fall into? It's like, well, just make it dark.
3: That's a good question. In my experience, I've been teaching at the Academy Part-time for a while, full-time now for six years, but part-time, I, I taught my first class there, I think, like 12 or 13 years ago or something. And I have yet to have a student that relies on something like that, really, and that being a problem. In my experience, most people are, are dying to carve out, you know, and, and make their mark and, and, and show what they can do and, and develop as much ideas as they can. And, and what they have to learn is restraint. The other thing I think that becomes less of a danger is I think it's actually kind of a bit easier to add one little more detail or two little more details in the background than it is to start like really editing out stuff too. And the fact that I hadn't really thought about it before again kind of informs me that I don't see it very often. I don't have to battle that too much. I'm on the other side of things to elevate the level of work. And it's probably because of the world we're in now where there are so many IPs and so many ideas and so much world building. That's, that's usually what they're most excited about is oh, I wanna do world building. I wanna also create a whole universe. And usually that's done through leaving some blank spaces for the audience to kind of insert themselves.
2: So to kind of wrap it up then, if a student's thinking about concept art and they're thinking about Star Wars and they're, or they're thinking about this massive IP, you know, what are just you know, some best practices? If you're going to start doing fan art for mm-hmm. the sake of doing it, mm-hmm. what are some, some tips to, to do it right?
3: I would say adding a little bit of yourself into it is the number one key thing. You know, if you're just doing a carbon copy of a Darth Vader image, people are just going to keep going and, and you know, there's nothing much magical to that. But especially if you're not a licensed work, if you put a little bit of, you know, push on his proportions, if you find a new way, a uh, Darth Vader with a more traditional samurai look, for example, not only is that then doing a little bit more heavy lifting and kind of showing your ability to design at that point and to think and to concept something and come up with an idea visually, but it also tells people a lot about you. A lot of our projects in the VisDev department revolve around like reimagining a fairy tale. That's what studios oftentimes have new hires do as like a test. So if you were to reimagine Little Red Riding Hood, most people think that's kind of a boring idea, but what does it have to be? You know, what if it's set in feudal Japan? What does that change? It changes a lot, right? It can change a lot. You know, what if you're setting it in space? What if the big bad wolf is actually just like a wolf space shaped spaceship, you know, pursuing a little red spaceship as she's trying to get to, you know, grandma's house, some planet far away? And whatever you choose says a lot about you, right? I'm into sci-fi, I'm into dark, edgy stuff, I'm into cute stuff, I'm into, you know, whatever it is. I'm I'm leaning more towards Disney, I'm leaning more towards Blizzard, I'm leaning more towards whatever studio you can kind of like audition. Because everyone's already familiar with the, the fan art that you're developing, but your spin is gonna define who you are. So you get the eyes on the work by basing it on a big IP, but what keeps them coming back is gonna be how you voice your opinion within that IP.
2: I, I cannot remember the name of the artist, but it was on Instagram forever. Mm-hmm. It was Somebody had done these great, you had mentioned Feudal Japan, these great Edo-era woodblock print styles of Super Mario Brothers and Star Wars. Nice. And all that stuff. And yeah. it was just like, they were just like, oh, wow. This was a whole lot of thought process on this. I remember
3: seeing one artist do it with all the Avengers. So like, Iron Man's armor was the craziest, right? And then, you know, Hulk's was the least. He was a big, still bulky dude but he had more traditional Japanese kind of garments on and stuff and that's that's cool because the other thing that's hard to keep in mind as a student and no one's going to think this way until they're in the industry no matter how much we tell them but you don't want to just get a job because you can fit in you want the job that you're going to enjoy And sometimes that means waiting a little bit longer for the right offer to come along. And so that's why no one thinks when you're graduating, it's like anything. Yeah, I can draw that. I can draw this. Sure. I've never drawn a horse before, but I'll do a job doing nothing but horses. No problem. You know, hire me. And that's understandable. And we all go through that. But if you can kind of do the work that you want to do and put that out there, then a student's going to come along and see that and go, we want you to do that too. And boy, oh boy is that when you really hit the high road, the holy grail, because then you're looking forward to going to work every day. Then you're getting up and you're working extra hours because you care. And then that can then create a better end product, whether it's a game or a movie or or anything else. And if it's a successful production, then that's also another big boost for your career, right? Oh, I worked on this thing. Oh, you worked on that? Oh, that was so cool. It's all very organic. And it's very whole hand, kumbaya kind of a thing. Like if you're doing what you're really enjoying, it's going to go better, but that's the goal. Sometimes you have to force inspiration and that's a necessary aspect of the job, but eventually you'll get to that point where you're not, where you're being brought in because they know you're good at what they want to do as well.
2: So there you go. Some great advice from Jeremy Saliba on understanding the world you're creating for, how you develop your taste, which is extremely important because as more and more art and design career opportunities are on the rise, employers are on the hunt for the next generation of talented and albeit skilled, creative professionals, and at Academy of Art University, you will get those work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco or anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request more information about our 40 plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, visual development, character animation, and more, visit our website at academyart.edu/creativemind. I'm Bobby Brill. Thanks for listening.
0: There was something else going on in Jedi. I never noticed it till today. They build another Death Star, right? Yeah. Now, the first one was completed and fully operational before the Rebels destroyed it.
1: Luke blew it up. Give credit where credit's due.
0: And the second one was still being built when they blew it up. Compliments of Lando Calrissian. Something just never sat right with me that second time around. I could never put my finger on it, but something just wasn't right.
1: And you figured it out?
0: The first Death Star was manned by the Imperial Army. The only people on board were stormtroopers, dignitaries, Imperials. Basically. So when they blew it up, no problem. Evil's punished.
1: And the second time around?
0: The second time around, it wasn't even done being built yet. It was still under construction. So? So a construction job of that magnitude would require a hell of a lot more manpower than the Imperial Army had to offer. I bet they brought independent contractors in on that thing. Plumbers, aluminum siders, roofers. And not just Imperials. Is that what you're getting at? Exactly. In order to get it built quickly and quietly, they'd hire anybody that can do the job. Think the average stormtrooper knows how to install a toilet main? All they know is killing in white uniforms.
1: All right, so they bring in independent contractors. Why are you so upset at its
0: destruction? All those innocent contractors brought in to do the job were killed. Casualties of a war they had nothing to do with. All right, look, you're a roofer. Some juicy government contract comes your way. You got a wife and kids, the two-story in suburbia. This is a government contract, which means all sorts of benefits. Along come these left-wing militants and blast everything within a three-mile radius with their lasers. You didn't ask for that. You have no personal politics. You're just trying to scrape out a living. Excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, what are you talking about? The ending of Return of the Jedi.
1: My friend here is trying to convince me that any independent contractors who were working on the uncompleted Death Star were innocent victims when they were destroyed by the Rebels. Well, I'm a contractor myself. I'm a roofer. Done and ready, home improvements. And speaking as a roofer, I can tell you roofer's personal politics comes into play heavily when choosing jobs. Like when? Three weeks ago, I was offered a job up in the hills, a beautiful house, tons of property, a simple reshingling job. They told me if I could finish it in one day, I would double my price. Then I realized whose house it was. Whose house was it? Dominic Bambino's. Babyface Bambino? The gangster? The same. The money was right, but the risk was too high. I knew who he was, and based on that, I turned the job over to a friend of mine. Based on personal politics. Right, and the next week, the Foresi family put a hit on Babyface's house. My friend was shot and killed. Didn't even finish reshingling. No way. I'm alive because I knew the risk involved in that particular client. My friend wasn't so lucky. Any contractor working on that dead Star knew the risk involved. If they got killed, it's their own fault. A roofer listens to this, not his wallet.